are in week three of the, everybody say whatever. whatever. Now you got to say it like a, like a 13-year-old. Whatever. The whatever. I love the way, I love the title of this. It's just, it's just, it's so tongue-in-cheek. But we're, we're, uh, we're talking about this. This is what we said. Our lives are built by the choices that we make and how we think and what we think about guide our decision processes. And we're keying off this verse in Philippians, uh, Philippians 4.8. Now, this is kind of cool because it starts with the word finally. Prior to this, Paul's talking about a bunch of cool stuff. He's wrapping up the book of Philippians. He's wrapping up this letter to this church. He's talked about unity in the church. He's talked about how we can do all things through Christ. Philippians is that that book of the Bible that's just chock full of all the things you see football players stick on their helmets and their jerseys. You know, I could do all things through Christ, all those things like that. And he says, finally, dear brethren, and he's giving him his list of instructions. Hey, as I'm wrapping this thing up, what do you pay attention to when a preacher says, finally, finally, dear brethren? Look at this. Number one, you're glad he's almost done, right? Number two, he says this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about these things. Amen? So last week we talked about thinking about things that are true. So this week we're just going to go word by word. We're going to talk about what it means to think about things that are noble. And a real quick definition of noble, if you look at other translations of the Bible, the NIV, for example, I believe says the word honorable instead of noble. All right? Same kind of deal, right? Honorable, things that are worthy, things that are estimable, all those kinds of different words. If something is honorable, we think about it. But here's what I was thinking as I meditated on this verse for the last week or so. I started thinking about this. What if we think about things that are noble, but we don't think about them in a noble way? Think about that for a second. Is there anything more noble than God? No. Is it possible, however, to have unnoble thoughts, if that's even a word, about God? I believe so. Is it, is it possible to have less than noble thoughts about things that should be noble? And so this morning, instead of addressing a list, because I think it would be really easy if you're kind of legally minded, right, to take this list of thou shalt, thou shalt, right, think about this, 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 and come up with a nifty little chart and list. We love it, don't we? You wonder why people sort of gravitate towards religion? Because we love it. We're humans, and you would, I'll tell you what, I would love to have a list of things to check off for God that I've done, 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 I'm good. How many of you guys know that faith doesn't work like that? Amen? It doesn't work like that. If it did, we wouldn't need Jesus. He'd just give us a list. But think about this. It'd be easy to take this thing and make a list of things we have to think about. And then say, don't think about that. It's not noble. And then we focus on these things that we think are noble, but we think about them in a way that is not. So here's the first point I'm going to make. The first thing is that we need to think noble thoughts about God. Uh, There should be a list. Uh, Hopefully there's a a fill in the blank. If not, you can take notes. I think this is going to be good. I'm going to throw a lot of Bible verses at you, okay? Uh, I would recommend you don't try to necessarily keep up in your Bibles flipping to and fro because I'm going to get through them quickly. But they should be listed and they'll be on the screen. But we want to think noble thoughts about God. If our view of God is shaped by religious tradition rather than Scripture, we're going to end up with a distorted and decidedly, and the word is ignoble, by the way. I like unnoble because it sounds better, but ignoble view of God. How is that possible? Because we start to think things about God in our own mind that makes sense to us as humans. And sometimes we're too busy building a theology about God that's based upon people in the Old Testament who, quite frankly, didn't have a clear view of God. They really didn't. They hadn't seen Jesus yet. Why is Jesus necessary? Because if you want to see the Father, you need to see Jesus. You have a 
a, a tainted view. You have a half view. You have a clouded vision of what God is. Job is, my, is that go-to guy, right? We go to him and the Bible says he was upright and he was all these things. But you know what? The fact of the matter is Job had some misconceptions of God. He thought that, number one, he thought that God was fickle. So here's my first point. God is not fickle. He does not change. He does not change his mind. He doesn't give and take away. I'm so tired of hearing that phrase, I could scream. We've even liked it so much, we've put it in our worship songs. He gives and takes away. That came out of Job's mouth. You know what? Job later on repented of saying that. He said, I talked about things I had no idea what I was talking about. I didn't even know God. I knew of God, but I didn't really know God. And God, after he's done sort of laying him out, for daring to question his nature when he had no idea, Job says, oh, man, I, I spoke of things I didn't know about. And here we are building a theology around Job, who said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, so be it. And he blamed God, essentially, for all kinds of crazy stuff, right? If you guys know the story of Job, you know it wasn't just he lost his property. He lost children. He lost wives. He lost everything. He lost his own health. And don't get me wrong, I, I get and I can appreciate Job's ultimate point was that, man, whatever happens, I'm not cursing God. Whatever happens, I'm not going to turn my back on him. But at the same time, we can, as a people, ascribe those things to God. Say, well, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. He gave me that, so I guess I just have to take it. That's unfair to God. That's a not noble thought about God. We think God gives stuff and then just immediately snatches it away just to test us and see if we would still be good people. I can imagine walking up into my son's room or my daughter's room and saying, hey, I know I just gave you that PlayStation, but I'm going to take it away for no reason just to see what you might say. How noble is that? <laughs> what kind of father? Am I going to win father of the year for doing that? No. Now, if he messes up, I'm going to take it away. Let's not miss, make any mistakes. I will. But look at this. What, what does the Bible say about God? Hebrews 13, 8 says this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And in Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, we hear that God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. And in the Amplified Version, it goes on to say, he never withdraws them when once they are given. And he does not change his mind about those to whom he gives his grace or to whom he sends his call. So guess what? If we're worried about God being fickle, we're going to get wrapped up in this works mentality that says, I got go, to keep doing good, I got to keep doing good, or God's going to change his mind about me. Can I tell you right now, people, God has a firm idea of who you are in his mind. He knows where you've been. He knows where you're going. He's not going to change his mind. You can't make him love you more. You can't make him love you less. It is what it is. God's love is so vast and so constant. Amen? Amen. Second thing I want to say is this. God is not a scorekeeper. Got a little blanket there. He's not a scorekeeper. We have this notion of God that he's up there with this little tally sheet, which, by the way, if it's true, we're in trouble, right? Because I don't have enough good ticks to make up for the bad ones. I really don't. And if you think you do, come talk to me. We'll, we'll discuss that. You don't. We're messed up. If we think God's up there with some sort of celestial, you know, baseball, baseball scorecard, that's an error. Pfft. Ooh, an RBI. Nice job. Any baseball fans in here? All right. I'm happy you're like, I don't, know what he's, I don't know what he's talking about. But God's not doing that, you know. And how do I know that? Because, just like the old song says, the Bible tells me so. It does, but we get this notion, not from Scripture, right, but we get it from tradition. We get it from our own human mindset that God's keeping score. 2 Corinthians five eighteen through 19. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And here's the money shot. Look at this. No longer counting people's sins against them. Let me say that again. No longer counting people's sins against them. 
How cool is that? And then he gave us this message of reconciliation. So guess what we as a church are supposed to do? We're supposed to go around telling people, guess what? God's not keeping score. And if you're out there telling people that God's keeping score, shame on you. Stop it. That's not the good news. It's not the gospel. Jesus did not come to give us a whole new set of rules that now we got to live up to. He came to tell us that, guess what? It's been finished. And it's not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has already accomplished for us. It's an awesome deal. Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, Colossians 2, 13 through 15 tells us this. When you were dead in your transgressions, your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. And this is my favorite. This is one of my favorite verses. I love this. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he is taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He took that thing that was leveled against you. He took those charges, those things, that indebtedness you had, and he nailed it to the cross. And one of the translations I read said he made a mockery of it. I love it, man. Here's the devil with his accusations. Here's the enemy with all the things he wants to say about you. And God didn't just wipe it out. He made a mockery of him. He shamed him. He told him, nah, this is so done, it could not be undone. This is so finished, you guys. God's not keeping score. He's not counting your sins against you. What will happen if we have this mindset is that we're going to go through life and we're going to worry more about sin than we are about righteousness. We're going to think that the way to get right is to worry about how much we sin. Can I tell you something? That is so counterproductive. It's so counterproductive. I don't know anybody who lives a life that's more righteous because they think more about sin. It doesn't work that way. Man, you've got to get your eyes on the right thing. You've got to get your eyes off of your sin, get your eyes on your Savior, get your eyes on the fact that you're awesome. Amen? Number three, God's not a score settler. He's not a scorekeeper, and he's not waiting for you to mess up so he can settle the score with you and finally get done, right? He's not doing that. I love this. In Romans 2, verse 4, he says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So often we think that we need to get people to come to a place of repentance by telling them how bad they are, that God's going to get them. When that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? It's the kindness of God. God is patient. He's tolerant. He is so not willing for us to go and do things we shouldn't do. But he's not waiting with a hammer. He's not waiting with a baseball bat to get us when we mess up, to settle the score with us. He's going to wait and be patient. Now, understand something. At some point, we've got to get there, right? At some point, man, but we need to be convinced of the fact that he's for us and he's not against us. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10, says, The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. How many of you guys need to hear that this morning? How many of you guys living with a weight of something that you're just waiting that you've done something and God owes you something now, and you're waiting for it to happen? I know people like that. Man, things are, things are going okay in their life. They've got some, un, some resolved issues. And then they're, just, they're, they're fearful that at some point something bad is going to happen. And they will have deserved it. Is that freedom? Do you think that Jesus went to the cross so that we could walk around in fear, worried about when he's going to come get us? I don't think so. I don't think so. We need to rest in the fact that he's not here to settle a score with us. That the score was settled on the cross. 
the score and the punishment that there was any was taken out on Jesus Christ. We don't have to take it. What's the point if we're going to keep harping on ourselves about that? It's amazing to me. Last point in this little section is this, is that God does not give bad gifts. Now, I'm a, forgive me if I step on some toes this morning, but I'm tired of hearing some stuff from believers. You know, I expect to hear crazy stuff from the world, but I'm tired of hearing some of the stuff from believers. When people are hurt and go through pain and loss, and we say stuff like, well, you know, the Lord just had to get your attention. Really? Really? Is that true? Did, now, don't get me wrong. Please understand what I'm saying. I understand that good things can come out of bad, uh, bad circumstances. I've known people who have, have gotten cancer or been in a really bad car wreck. And in the downtime of healing and all that stuff, they rediscover their faith and they do all this stuff. And that's, that's amazing. But please don't tell me that God caused the car wreck to get your attention. Please don't tell me that God gave a six-year-old leukemia so that he could test the faith of the parents. Please don't tell me I serve a God like that because I don't believe it. I don't believe it. There's one author of death. And there's one author of disease. And there's one author of lies. And it is not Jesus Christ. Amen? Can I get a big amen on that? There is one good gift giver and there is one bad devil. And I'm telling you here, God can take all that bad stuff and he can absolutely, and he will absolutely turn it back to good. But I don't believe for one second that he's out there causing this stuff. Look at what James says about God in, this, in, in, in uh, uh, the first verse, uh, chapter 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. I could have used that verse in the very first point too, right? That God is constant. Well, he's so constant, he doesn't give bad gifts. He's so constant, he's only knows, he only knows how to do good. And so those things that he gives us are the good things we need. Matthew 7, 9, 11. On Father's Day, this is a great verse for us dads. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Isn't that good? Man, Jesus is telling people, man, even you guys in your fallen state, even you guys with your clouded understanding of God and all these things and your, your finite vision, if even you know how to give good gifts, how much better does he know how to give good gifts? How much better does God know how to take care of his children than we do? I don't know that there's a father in this room who, if his son asked for something, would give him something bad instead. I'm not saying we always give them what they want, right? How many dads in this room know that's true, right? I, if I had the ability, I probably still wouldn't do it. Give my kid everything he wants. I'm not going to give a 14-year-old a Camaro. It's just dumb, all right? I won't do it. Maybe, okay, fine, i give him one that doesn't run. Woohoo! We can work on it together. But if he asked for a Camaro, I wouldn't give him a rattlesnake. Well, you know, that's same, same, right? I give it. <laughs> hey, Dad, I really want that new uh, PlayStation game. Yeah, I'm going to give you some liverwurst instead. Well, you're welcome. It's good for you, you know. So God is in the business of being a good father. Amen? He gives good gifts. And if we're not aware, we'll conduct ourselves, our relationship with him will be kind of off. We'll put ourselves in a place, and I've been there, trust me, I spent the majority of my Christian life in this place of thinking, man, I owe him. I owe him. I'm never going to live up to what I owe him. And I was no, let me tell you, that sounds modest and it sounds noble, but it's death. There's no freedom in it. There's no freedom. There's no freedom to make a mistake because the second you do, you expect what's coming after that. I'm not talking about willfully going out and acting the fool. I'm talking about the, the ability to live your life and understand that if you blow it, you haven't blown it. 
Does that make sense? Man, I blew it, but I didn't blow it. My God is still right beside me. And I ran far, and I ran fast. But when I turned around, guess what? He was right there. I have talked to so many people who think they've run from God. No, you haven't. You've tried. <laughs> but that'd be like trying to outrun your own shadow. It'd be like trying to outrun your own self. Man, we got to have freedom in this. We have to have freedom to understand that God is not going to change his mind about us. He's not in the business of giving us bad stuff. He's not in the business of giving us good stuff and then turning around and taking it away from us. That's just not good parenting. And he's a good father. Amen? All right. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to think noble thoughts about yourself. Why is this important to think noble thoughts about yourself? Can I tell you why? Because you're noble. The Bible tells you so. If you don't believe that, you need to get back in the word. If your self-image is built on anything other than the truth of God's word, we're going to relate to God in a way that is both unhealthy and counterproductive. Now understand, I've lived my whole life in an era of political, political correctness where we have abused the word self-esteem. We have absolutely stripped it of any real meaning. I understand that. I worked as a teacher for a lot of years. I know in, the, in, the, in, that, in that arena of education and sometimes in politics, we can take this word self-esteem and we can kind of beat it up a little bit, right? And we give people fake self-esteem and we build them up on stuff that's not true and we give trophies to everybody and we do all this stuff to boost, you know, um, artificially self-esteem. But at the same time, you know what's even, what's just as um, unhealthy as that? Is having a view of yourself that is so bad that it's not based in reality. You are lots of things. If you'll go through the Bible, I don't have time to go through all of them. We'll go through a handful of them. But you know what? The Bible says really good stuff about you. The Bible says really, really good stuff about you. And we're going to start with this. First blank, you are righteous. If I was to take a poll of the average Christian in America... I bet you I would get about 1% or 2% of the population who if you questioned them and said, are you righteous, they would say, oh, no. 1% or 2% might say, yeah, absolutely, yes, I'm righteous. It sounds wrong to say it, doesn't it? It sounds arrogant. It sounds delusional almost. But you know what? The Bible says you're righteous. If you're in Christ, you're righteous. Are you a sinner? Uh-uh. Do you sin? Eh, sometimes. But you know what? I run sometimes. I got news for you. I'm not a runner. I'm not. I sometimes work on my car. Guess what? Not a mechanic. I'm not. You can do things and not be things, right? We get wrapped up in this idea that we are what we do, and suddenly sometimes I fall down and mess up, and now I'm a failure. You know, I used to drink a little bit. I'm still an alcoholic. All these things, we get our, our identity wrapped up in behavior versus our identity wrapped up in what Christ says about you, and we get messed up, and we get messed over, and guess what? Then we go on and we hurt people. And we mess them over too. But look what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says about you. It says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. Why? So that we could be made right with God through Christ. Made right. That's all righteous means. It doesn't mean, you know, some kind of elevated lofty. It means you're right. There was a wrong relationship, and it wasn't working, and now you're right. Does it mean everything you'll do from this point forward is right? No. But I got news for you. Here's what I've found out. The less I worry about sin, and I don't mean we don't consider it important, but the less I concentrate and focus on sin, the more righteous I become. The more I live out what God says about me. I'm, I'm so less concerned about it than I used to be. I'm not wrapped up in it. I don't obsess about it. And guess what? I, for, I go for sometimes hours and hours and don't sin. <laughs> it is amazing, though, how, you know, 
we have this notion, you know, if I was to stand here and tell you in some company that you could live, you know what, you could live a sinless life. I'd be, I'd be stoned as a heretic. There are certain circles of, of Christianity that would, that would tell me I was out, I was full of it. You know what's even worse in my mind is to tell people they don't have any choice. How, how, how heretical is that? Oh, uh, you know what, it's just your nature. You can't help it, you're going to sin. Well, then I might as well. If one gives license to sin, doesn't the other give license to sin? How much more does telling someone they got no choice give them license to sin than telling them they don't have to give them? I don't understand that for one second. The grace of God empowers us to live a sinless life, a righteous life. Telling people they still have a sin nature <laughs> just gives them a cop-out. That's eh, not my fault. It isn't me. It's my nature. So you are righteous. I could go through verse after verse after verse, by the way. I'm not just cherry-picking one or two, okay? For the sake of time, I don't have time to go through all hundred of them. But the New Testament is chock full of verses that say that you are righteousness. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. You are made right. You have been forgiven. These are all past tense things, by the way. They've been done. They've been accomplished. The second thing you are is an heir. How many of you guys would like to get a letter in the mail tomorrow that says you have inherited lots and lots of money until you have to pay the attorneys? Okay. You're an heir, though. That's, that's the coolest thing in the world to me. Look at Romans 8.15. It says, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Let me stop real quick. The one thing that, that the story of Job teaches us is it's a dangerous thing to live in fear. Go back and read through the story of Job and read about how he was righteous and all this stuff that God said about him that was good. But what happened when things started going awry for Job was he said, that which I feared has come upon me. He was afraid of it. He operated it from a place of fear. And we haven't got that spirit. As believers in, new, in the new covenant, we have received the spirit that does not make us slaves, that we don't have to live in fear. But look at this. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba. Everybody knows the word Abba is daddy. I tell you what, there's not an Old Testament guy. There's not an Old Testament saint who had the privilege of approaching God as daddy. And Jesus invites us in the Lord's Prayer to say, Our Father, Abba, Daddy, who art in heaven. And we have a whole new relationship with him based on that. Look at Galatians 3.29. It says this, And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. That's amazing, right? We're not just sort of getting in, you know, as like the red-headed stepchildren. You know, these are like, well, okay, we'll throw you some crumbs. Man, we're invited to the table. We're brought in. We're the prodigal son that gets the shoes on our feet, the robe on our shoulders, and the ring. He says, you're my son, you're my child, in whom I'm well pleased. And all this stuff I had set aside for my heirs, guess what? You get a piece of that. We get adopted in. How cool is that? If we don't understand that we're not just being tolerated by God, but that we are loved and be loved by God, our relationship with him will be messed up. It will be based on works. It will be based on what we think we deserve. And the second we boil our relationship with God down to what we think we deserve, man, we just get all kinds of weird. The word I was trying to come up with was cattywampus. I mean, y'all from the south here. Get all cattywampus. Get weird. It just gets off kilter. Don't laugh at me. I see you up there. <laughs> it's unbelievable. This third thing is this. You're a new creation. You are a new creation. We've said this <laughs> so many times. It's sometimes weird because we say things so often they can sometimes lose their meaning. But do you, have understanding? do you understand how big of a deal it is that you're a new creation? 
The old has gone. The new has come. And so why should we live like we used to live? Why should I accept the things as true that used to be true when I'm no longer that guy? Look what uh, 2 Corinthians says. 2 Corinthians 5.17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Does that mean, once again, that from this point forward, we're good to go? We're perfect? No, it doesn't. But you know what? It means that my identity is not wrapped up in my behavior. It means that my identity is not a result of things I do or don't do. It's my identity is not a result of me trying to get God to look at me differently. For years and years and years, I was raised in a pretty traditional church back in California. And these little Christian catchphrases would kind of creep in. And the one I always heard was this term of being out of fellowship. You know, like you would sin and suddenly God would, you're out of fellowship. You know, really? I don't believe it's biblical. I don't believe that God turns his back on us when we mess up. I don't, and if you think that for a second, if you think that God can't handle your sin, then what in the world was Jesus doing hanging out with prostitutes? What in the world was Jesus doing going to the home of a tax collector if he just could not stand next to someone who was sinful? Your sin doesn't separate you from God. Your sin does not. He doesn't run away screaming because he can't handle the mess you've become. Trust me, he's dealt with worse. Amen? You are a new creation. And our job as Christians is to live in a way that starts to flesh that out. Starts to look like it's true. And you know what? It starts with believing that it's true. The Bible says that as a man thinks, so he is. So it's time to start thinking right thoughts about yourself. I don't care what situation you're in. I don't care. I don't care how bad you think you've messed it up. It doesn't change a thing about the way God feels about you. Amen? All right, I got to go quick. Uh, You're dead to sin. Next one. Look at this. Romans 6.11 says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Man, that's awesome. That means sin no longer has a hold on you. It means that no longer you're a slave to it. That you can and you should be working towards a place where that's no longer an issue anymore for you. As God whispers in your ear, that's not for you. That's not for you. He's not wagging his finger. He's not getting mad. He's just saying, what would a child of the king be doing messing with that? I got so much better stuff for you. Last one in this little section is that you are under grace. Can y'all say that with me? Say, you are under grace. Man, what does that mean for us? Check it out. Galatians 5.18 says, when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under the obligation to the law of Moses. We can do a whole series about that. But understand what that means. There was law and there is grace. There was Moses and there is Jesus. Pick who you're going to follow. You want to follow Moses? Good luck with that. Let me tell you how it worked out for every other single person in human history besides Jesus. Not well. Why would I live under the law of Moses when I could live under the law of grace? Why would I follow that guy who's a shadow of the real thing, Jesus? Amen? It's amazing. Man, this law thing, this grace, oh, there's just no comparison. Romans 6.14 says, Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of grace. So you want obligation or you want freedom? I, about, I don't know about you guys. I want freedom. I want freedom. I don't need the obligation. I don't need that lorded over me. And we could, again, we could go on and on and on about that. And hopefully in the future we'll have some time to do that. But we are under grace. We are under this new covenant, which is a beautiful thing. Last section. We need to think noble thoughts about God. We need to think noble thoughts about ourselves. And the last thing I want to say is we need to think noble thoughts about people. 
We do. Our assignment is to reach people. If we don't have noble thoughts, look at that. We'll never fulfill our assignment to reach the world if our view of others is skewed. And I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. First one is this. This point is this. People aren't the enemy. They're not the enemy. It's really, really easy to get wrapped up in hurt and pain. And I know there's people in this room. I don't think there's a single person in this room who's never been hurt by somebody. And some of you more than others. Some of you worse than others. But there's nobody in this room who has an experience where they can tell me, you know what? Everyone's been pretty cool. I've never been lied about. I've never been cheated on. I've never been stolen from. I've never been. Make your list of things that have happened to you. And then it's really easy to turn that into anger towards people. And I know people who've been hurt enough and hurt enough and hurt enough that, you know what, I'm done with people. I'm tired of getting my heart stomped on. I'm tired of putting myself out there and being taken advantage of. You know what, I understand that. God understands that. But you know what, people aren't the enemy. They're not. Look what Ephesians 6.12 says us. Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It tells me that if I'm cut off in traffic by that guy who I want to go now chase down and beat to a pulp, God would frown upon that. I'm not mad at him. All right? I know that's a, that's a pretty trivial thing, but I, there's things that we're all dealing with. I could look around this room right now, and I, I bet you all could tell me stories, and I bet they would break my heart. I could tell you stories right now that would break your heart too. We've all been done wrong. We have. But people aren't the enemy. They're not. If, they're, if they've hurt you, we've got to get past it. Right? Forgiveness is an important thing. I'll leave that one alone with that. Second thing is this. The people are more important than systems. People are more important than systems. The way that the Pharisees got it wrong is that they valued their system more than they valued people. You'll never hear Jesus go around and tell the, the, tell the, the Pharisees that they weren't doing right. He never, he never questioned the fact that they were righteous, that they were good. In fact, he compared lots of, he said, man, your, your righteousness had better be better than that of the Pharisees. He held their, their righteousness and their ability to keep the law in pretty high esteem. But what he didn't hold in high esteem was the fact that that took the place of caring for people. And they lost their way. They got so wrapped up. Remember we talked about earlier, it's easier to make a list let me take the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to turn it into 600 and something old laws. They took ten and made a whole system of the ten. They didn't look at the Spirit. They looked at, well, what does it mean to honor the Sabbath? Well, let's make some rules about that. And every rabbi had their own little set of rules. But look, at, look what Jesus tells them in Matthew 23, 23. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. It means they tithe, right? Mint, dill, cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter. Now, he didn't tell him he shouldn't have done the other, right? You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So again, he doesn't call into question their attempts at living according to the law, which was what they should have done, right? But they did that at the expense of people. Justice, mercy, faithfulness all has to do with dealing with other people and they had a really bad habit of looking down on folks who weren't as good as them they had a really bad habit of marginalizing those who didn't believe the way they did and those who they thought were less than and they had a really nice little you know tendency to group people together this sound like anybody you know don't we do this this is a human condition we like to group people together so those guys if it wasn't for those guys 
Things would be okay. If it wasn't for that group, if it wasn't for those people, and next thing you know, we fall into the same trap of comparing and stratifying ourselves based on what we think is good and what is right. But people are way more important than that. We're here for people. The next thing is this. People are more important than stuff. People are more important than stuff. I'll be the first to admit to you that I like stuff. I do. I ain't going to lie. I stand here and be like, no, I don't like stuff. I'm too spiritual for that. Yeah, I like stuff. Go to my house. You'll see stuff. All right? I like to buy new stuff. I like to get rid of old stuff. I like to accumulate stuff. I'm, I'm not a hoarder, but I think I could be in a different life if my wife would not shoot me. The issue isn't the stuff. The issue isn't, oh, my gosh, this is so bad. Stuff is just bad. The issue is where it, where it lies in our priorities, right? It's like, is it important or is it important? Now, look at, look at the story that Jesus tells um, in Mark 10, 17 through 22. We call this the story of the, the rich young ruler, okay? And as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So he's already got it, right? I'm good. All these I've done. I'm a righteous guy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that. Read that again. Jesus looked at him and loved him. So even while he's, he's about to do something that some might say is not very nice, he loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And I can just picture the man's face going, yeah, I did all that stuff, God. What's next? What's next? And his face go, oh. Look what it says. The man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Not everybody that Jesus came into contact with left happy. I mean, most people, I would say a good chunk of people came, heard Jesus speak, and left more challenged than they wanted to be challenged. And they couldn't take it, you know. And God was not, by the way, setting up a thing where as Christians we got to be poor, okay. I, I don't like that this verse is used by a lot of people to justify this spirit of poverty on Christians. This is not a blanket statement for all of Christendom, give away your stuff. This was a challenge to this man who had an issue with stuff. And Jesus knew it because he's Jesus. And he called him on it. And the guy couldn't do it. He said, give your stuff away. Give it to the poor. Follow me. How many of you guys, if given the opportunity to follow the living Christ, would follow him? It's easy in this room to say, man, I'd have gone right there on the spot. Man, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I wish I could say that with 100% certainty, but I don't know. I might have been that guy who went, man, I just got that Escalade. I saved up a long time, man. You have no idea how much, how much work I put into that house I just bought and those stocks and bonds that I have and all that wealth I've accumulated. Yeah, maybe some other time. and Maybe we walk away. I don't know. But you know what? I, will, I do know this. People are more important than stuff. And if Jesus had called him to go with him to reach the world, his stuff wasn't more important than that. There's no way. I guarantee you. There's a guy that regrets a decision. You know, everyone wants to be in the book. I don't think you want to be in the book for that reason. I'm like, woohoo, they told a story about me. It was, uh, I was the jerk who didn't follow Jesus because I had too much stuff. Darn it! You know, you just go back in time. Yes, absolutely. He, he probably would change his mind given, you know, a little bit of 20-20 hindsight. But people are important, Right? 
That's the point. So the last point I have is this, all right? We're going to close with this one. People are the point. We have to have our minds firmly wrapped around this notion that people are the point. For God so loved the world, right, that he came for us. He didn't come for a system. He didn't come for a religion. There was already a pretty good one established, right? There was already pretty elaborate systems of, of worship and all this stuff, but, but that's not why Jesus came. Matthew 20, 24 through 28, when the ten heard about this, and this is when, uh, if you guys know the story of the sons of thunder, it's one of my favorite stories, uh, they were brought by their mother to Jesus, right? And she says, hey, I want my boys, one to sit on your right and one to sit on your left, Jesus. That's a bold statement, right? She thought her kids were it. Trust me, I know I have kids and I think they're it too. I'm not sure I would ask that, but... Look at it. When, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers, right? They were kind of like, who do you guys think you are? Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Again, he's talking to his disciples, right? Saying, that's not the way it is with you guys. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus put it all in line for us, didn't he? He set the example for us. He did not come. How easy would it have been for Jesus to come and set himself up a pretty awesome kingdom? Man, he had all that power. He had all that authority. He, could have, he was influential. People liked him. He was charismatic. It could have been a really big deal. And he could have been weighted on hand and foot. He could have had absolute rock star status, right? And he didn't do that. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And he came to make sure that that was what we were left with as a people, is that people were important. He came for them, and so must we care for people. My last one, John three sixteen. Anthony, I told you I'd get through all of them, buddy. He didn't think I would. He was doubtful. He's over there typing all these. I'm not going to get through. What did he say? You better use every one of these verses. I did. I know. I like the Bible. What can I say? I'm sorry, man. Last one. We're going to close with this one. Everybody knows this first, but I think it sums up this whole point nicely, that this people are the point, right? For God so loved the world, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The reason that Jesus came was for people. The reason that he healed was for people. The reason that he raised the dead was for people. Every single thing that Jesus did was not, and matter of fact, it wasn't even necessarily for the person that he healed. He healed people, and what, the, what happened? People saw, and they were amazed. You know, everything that God does for us becomes a testimony to the goodness of God. We ought to be out there talking about the things he's done for us, talking about the things that he's planned for 